that last song, that's in my, if it's not in my top five, probably is. It's in the top seven. I'll, if I ever do have a memorial service, it'll, that'll be one that'll be sung along with Give Me Jesus. I love the simplicity of it and probably a favorite of yours as well. Jeremiah chapter 45 uh, tonight, as we turn there on Sunday nights going through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, you'll be fairly lost without a Bible this evening. And so, wave to the men that are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. They'll put one in your hand. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from us to you this evening. When we uh, come to the end of uh, chapter uh, 45 here, uh, or 44 in the book of Jeremiah, we formally kind of cease the uh, record of, of Jeremiah's uh, prophetic ministry. There are no more of his uh, direct prophecies that are for us in the remainder of the book in the sense that uh, we've got his prophecies being uh, prophesied in, in their immediate context. The remainder of the book from chapter 45 all the way uh, through, uh, they're outside of kind of the general chronology uh, of the book. And here you have a collection of prophecies that Jeremiah had given in the course of his uh, 40 years of, of prophetic ministry, and, uh, and most of them having to do with God's announcement of his judgment upon the nations of, that surrounded uh, Israel and, uh, and Judah and then uh, ultimately his uh, prophetic utterance against Babylon itself, there is a single personal uh, prophecy in all of this, and it is found in uh, chapter 45. One of the things that I think is important for us as we look at this with an overview, sometimes we can uh, look at these chapters and say, um, you know, I, I don't know that they have a lot to, to speak to me. Uh, personally or individually as a Christian, and it, it seems like they're spoken specifically to the Egyptians of, of, of many, many years ago, and uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites and so forth, and, and uh, that they're kind of far, uh, far away from us. It is one of the things that these chapters uh, does for us is that it, each of these prophecies are going to be completely and utterly fulfilled by God. And it speaks to us of the powerful witness to biblical prophecy, to the uh, 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 God breathe, the inspiration of God of the Scriptures. No one could prophesy the way that God has in this book. You know Jean Dixon from back, I mean, you're a little older if you remember her, or uh, Nostradamus and these kind of things. They get two or three things that they say comes to pass out of thousands of things. And here you have the Bible that says thousands of things. Every one of them comes to pass, and everybody yawns collectively within the culture. But fulfilled prophecy is a very strong witness to the inspiration of Scripture, and it's a strong witness uh, to us and very important to us as Christians tonight that just as every one of these prophecies were fulfilled, every jot, every tittle, every single aspect of them fulfilled in ancient history, so too as we look at what the Bible has to say in, uh, in, in Daniel, Revelation, elsewhere in terms of the last days, uh, Ezekiel, that all of those prophecies are going to be fulfilled as well. So we look and we may say, well, I don't see myself in these chapters. That may be good because they're all judgment. Uh, and so we can kind of be thankful related to that. Um, so, 
and then very often as God spends the bulk of the book of Jeremiah, he's, you know, he's dealing with the southern kingdom of Judah. He's dealing with his people in their, in their wickedness and in their idolatry and rebuking them and so forth and bringing his judgment upon them and chastening them. Peter says something very interesting in his first epistle, and he declares the fact that God's judgment begins in the house of God. It always does. He's always working to purify uh, those of us who represent him in this world. But it never stays there. His judgment is never limited to um, the the body of Christ. Uh, It then ultimately moves beyond our lives and the chastening that it so often takes within our lives and ultimately moves into the world itself. We live in an age in the United States of America where uh, atheism and agnosticism are uh, growing and growing very, very rapidly, a desire to uh, escape uh, the demands of Scripture, the demands of holy living, and so forth. It all goes back to uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. People are addicted to it now and have no interest in, in a part of a revival, probably, of turning away uh, from, from that. And the whole idea, you know, if I'm going to immerse myself in wickedness and in sin, uh, what's the next thing that's got to go? God's got to go. I can't believe there's a God and then be doing this. I mean, I'll be tormented every day. Uh, so how much, uh, how much atheism in, in the United States of America has its roots in uh, a real kind of uh, intellectual exercise and uh, how much of it is rooted in a protection, protection of uh, a... Uh, a sin in my life, only God knows. I think it's 100% to zero, though, as I read the Scriptures and what Jesus has to say about that. But very often there's the idea, it's all around you, it's all around me, every, every day, every week that we live in the United States and beyond, that somehow, as the Bible talks about a coming judgment upon the world that is an atheist, that doesn't bother me at all. I don't believe in God, I don't, and because I don't believe in God, I don't have to think about what the Bible says, what is right and wrong according to the Bible, what happens when you disregard God's definitions of right and wrong, because I don't believe in, in uh, the God of the Bible, and so why would I care? The problem related to that position is a person may not believe in God, but God believes in himself. And I can ignore all of his commandments, all of his warnings related to judgment and so forth, and it does not uh, make them uh, cease their rapid approach, not one single bit. And so all of these nations that surrounded Judah it looked like, yeah, God deals with, you know, the God of the Bible, the God of Judah. He deals with only, uh, you know, the people who believe in him among the people of Judah. But no, every single human being in the world owes our very breath and our life to our creator who happens to be the God of the Bible. And all of this is coming, uh, whether we believe in him or not. He believes in himself. He can't lie. And so all of these things will come to pass. And it begins here in this final section of Jeremiah in chapter 45 with a personal word to Baruch. And then here is the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah. And we remember Baruch was Jeremiah's personal secretary who would scribe for Jeremiah as he would prophesy 
uh, Baruch would uh, write down those prophecies. And, uh, and when he had written these words, Baruch did, at the, uh, in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says uh, the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, Baruch. We remember from chapter 36 some time ago that, uh, remember Jeremiah as he was prophesying, and he was arrested because of his prophecies. He was hurting morale, so they were saying. So they imprisoned him. And so what Jeremiah did is he gave the prophecy on the scrolls to Baruch. Baruch was to then go to the area of the temple and read those prophecies. Jeremiah couldn't do it uh, himself. Jeremiah, uh, Baruch immediately got the attention of uh, the religious leaders there and then the civil, uh, the princes there, and he was then brought before Zedekiah. And you remember that very, very uh, awful scene where Zedekiah here is a king of God's people as he's listening to the prophecies being spoken by Baruch. Uh, one prophecy after another, he would cut them off with his penknife and throw them in the fire. And so this is the event that Jeremiah is talking about. This is the context of this encouragement to Baruch. That situation was a difficult situation for Baruch to go through. And thus says the Lord God, verse 2, uh, the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, Baruch, you said, woe is me now. God knows what we're thinking. The Bible says, it's interesting, he doesn't just know what we're thinking when we think it. The Bible, the Bible teaches that God has even greater clarity than that. He knows our thoughts when they're far off. He knows them before we're even going to think them. If you ever want to have an argument with God about what he's doing in your life, or people say, you know something, I'm going to get to heaven and I'll have a talk with him about where was he and where was my angel, you know, during these things, you'll be at a tremendous disadvantage. Uh, you've ever seen that comic, uh, The Far Side, where uh, God is playing Jeopardy and he's got all of the points and it's going to be kind of like that. And, and so, here God is very aware of what uh, uh, Baruch was experiencing in all of this, and what he was feeling was woe. He just looked at his life and he said, woe is me. I've destroyed my life. My life is ruined here. And uh, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing and I find no rest. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's one thing to be sorrowful, which we, he already was. And then he says, now God has added grief to that sorrow and uh, it's resulted in not only my sighing, but I'm fainting under my sighing and I can't find uh, any, uh, any rest at all. And that was the condition of Baruch's heart as he came back from that experience of having King Zedekiah cut up those prophecies and throw them uh, in the fire. He's just overwhelmed with uh, grief here. Probably what has happened, and, uh, and more than probably, undoubtedly what happened to Baruch in this entire scene is he realizes that in coming and then uh, declaring these prophecies in the area of the temple, uh, being kind of hustled into the presence of the princes and then ultimately into the presence of the king, he realizes, I am now forever identified with Jeremiah the prophet and with these, uh, these prophecies. And so uh, here he, he's been uh, very much branded, very much identified with Jeremiah at a time uh, when making a stand or being identified with, with uh, Jeremiah was very, very uh, unpopular. And it looks like as he has been Jeremiah's secretary, made these prophecies, it looks like he has thrown his entire life away. 
I have destroyed any chance for greatness, any chance for success. I will never get out from under my, how I identified myself with God in this setting and with, uh, with his uh, prophet. And, and uh, I think it's very likely that it probably cost uh, Baruch a, a high position in the government or a, a, some kind of an advancement that he had desired. He realized, I've made a stand for God, and there's going to be consequences for this. I'm not going to have upward mobility now uh, in the government and in terms of, of employment. Uh, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that he came from a very, very prominent family, a very distinguished family. And uh, his grandfather had been the governor of, of Jerusalem. And so, undoubtedly, he was being groomed for great things in the city uh, of, of Jerusalem. And uh, he had a brother who was uh, on the king's official staff and uh, probably could have secured a great job for him uh, in the palace. And instead, what has Baruch done? He's identified himself with Jeremiah and in uh, and, and, and doing the will of, uh, of God here. And now I've just sunk my uh, future. It is interesting to, uh, and I think it's important, as we look at Jeremiah and you look at virtually any of the people that God uses in the Bible. Uh, you know, he, in the New Testament, he sends us out in twos, and there, there are a variety of reasons for that. Uh, but it's always a team. It's never just Jeremiah alone, so to speak, as alone as he, you know, appears within, within the book. God brought people alongside of him at strategic times, and, and Baruch was a, a very, a very important uh, assistant to, uh, to Jeremiah. This thing that Baruch is feeling here, and that is, I've made a stand for God. I've identified myself now forever in this generation uh, as, as being with God, and, uh, and now it's cost me any kind of a, of a future of greatness in the world or greatness in government or anything. That is a very real issue uh, that many of us are going to have to deal with in the course of our lives and our ministries and the likelihood of, of the, our relationship with God and our identification with Him uh, ultimately costing us something is, is becomes higher and higher by the year in the United States of, uh, of America. And that question for when we begin to serve the Lord in His calling, and then looking at the big picture of our life, what we do for a living, what we want to do, our hopes, our dreams as it relates into life. And, and there is that moment when you stop and you look at what God is calling me to do, and sometimes uh, you look at it exactly as Baruch does here, and you wonder, I, if I follow God, if I identify with Him in this way, and uh, am obedient to him? Am I throwing away my future? Am I throwing away future prosperity by giving myself to God in, this, in his plan for my life in this very real uh, way? I know for me as a pastor, it's probably true of most pastors, the fact that they've got so much on tape in terms of my teaching, there's, there are vast segments of society I could never hope to be employed in again. Uh, it would be used against me in anything that I would even uh, try to do. It's the price of, of the changes that are happening in the United States of America, where what people like I do is no longer highly esteemed. Uh, and, uh, but it's true of everyone. And I want to encourage you, uh, especially those of you who are younger, but really all of you, when, whenever we come to know the Lord and the Lord lets us know what the call is, there's always going to be a price to, to follow that. 
because of the, the way of the world. The world is going in one direction. God is going in another direction. And so we will end up identified. We want everybody to like us. We want everybody to, you know, to think that it won't cost us anything to walk with God. We're nice people. How could it cost? I'm the best employee here because of Christ within my life or whatever we might. But there's always a price. There's always a price like that. And when we come to realize that I'm going to pay a price to be faithful to God, to always, always be faithful to God. And I'll show you why here as we, as we come to it in a moment. And, and then uh, in verse 4, thus you shall say to Baruch, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built I will break down, and what I have planted I will pluck up, that is this whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh. Speaking of Judah there, says the Lord, and I will give, you, I will give your life to you as a prize in all places uh, wherever you go. And the Lord's response to rebuke was, listen, you regret the fact that you've thrown away a chance at some kind of greatness in showbiz or in, in business or in government or whatever it might be, but what good is greatness in a wicked society? What good is becoming great in a nation or in a culture that I'm about to destroy and pull down to the, the very foundation stones. Uh, what good is greatness when, uh, in order to be great for God, uh, it, it results in this kind of persecution against you? And that's always the sign of a culture that has God's judgment hanging over it, is that when a person desires to be great for God, it then costs them something, and year by year it costs them something more to do that. That's a nation that's on the wrong side of God and on the wrong side of His judgment, and that's where we are, and that's where uh, Baruch was. But the Lord spoke to him and said, listen, you want to be great. You think it's cost you a greatness in academia or whatever uh, it might be. But everything that you wanted to be great in, all of those dreams, I'm going to destroy them in a moment when I allow Babylon to come in for the third time and, and take everything captive and everything uh, to pillage all of it and take it back uh, into, uh, into Babylon always again to lose out on greatness in this world because of faithfulness to God's Word is only to lose out on greatness in a world that is headed for judgment and is going to be broken down. Uh, it is interesting, and I think it's important to notice when he says in verse 5, it's one of the famous verses of Jeremiah where God says, and do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. It's one of the great early verses that God spoke very specifically and prophetically to Charles Spurgeon. And here he is, he's the, he's the boy preacher, the boy wonder, uh, 19 years old, and he's got this tabernacle, and thousands and thousands of people are cramming into this church to hear the Word of God through uh, Charles Spurgeon. And the Lord spoke to him to kind of hit his, any uh, temptation toward pride. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. And he embraced that. And, and there's nothing wrong with ambition. 
uh, in the Bible. It's never condemned. In fact, ambition and industriousness, these kind of things are commended from one end of the Bible uh, to, to the other. Uh, what is condemned is selfish ambition, where I am uh, selfishly ambitious. I am uh, directing and guiding my own life, and, uh, and I want to become great, but I want to become great for me. But I don't want to leave anybody with the idea that a desire to be great for God, to be great for the kingdom of God, to be great for the glory of God is some kind of terrible thing. We should desire to be great. What matters is what do we desire to be great for and who do we desire to be great for. And if it's for God and the kingdom of God, then, then that's great. But to seek to be great uh, just for my own, uh, you know, glory and, and, and exaltation, that's what's being uh, condemned here. And so, yeah, I, I know that what you've done here, identifying with me, Jeremiah, God says to Baruch, I know that you, you recognize the consequences of it fully uh, before you. Uh, but uh, all you've lost is greatness in the world. You haven't lost greatness in the kingdom uh, of God. One of the fascinating things about Baruch here is that what, what he thinks is a loss is actually saves his life. He desired to be something great and, and, and to achieve some kind of greatness there in Judah at that time. And if his brother had had any kind of connections or he had been put into the upper levels of, of the government at the time that Nebuchadnezzar took uh, Babylon or, or took uh, Jerusalem, we remember what he did. He took not only the sons of the king, but he took all of the officials that were associated with the king and killed them. And so probably by choosing to say, no, I will go with God, I will go with his plan, as hard as it is, as mysterious as it is to me, um, it, it ultimately probably saved his life. And it teaches us an additional lesson. The safest place any of us can be in the whole wide world is in the middle of God's will. And you may die there. You may be martyred there. I may die there and be martyred there. But it's still the safest place in the world. Once we get out into the world, we get out into our self-will, we're out there meandering and wandering around. We don't, we don't even know what God would do to chasten us, to bring us back, but we don't know what's next to be judged within the world, and we've planted ourselves right in the middle of it. If God plants us in the middle of a dark place, that's fine, but we can't self-determine uh, determine that. And so this great concern, it's a timeless concern. We'll all face it. Where every time we make that decision and, and, and we look and say, if I make this stand, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me these relationships in, in, in school. It's going to cost me relationships or the potential of promotion at a job scene or whatever it might be. And again, this is only going to get worse unless there's a revival uh, that turns things around. And the Lord spoke to him and said, listen, you've, you've, uh, uh, you, you've uh, taken the stand that you've taken, and in, in honoring that, I will give you your life as a prize in all places wherever you go. I will spare your life uh, from the midst of the judgment that is, is uh, going to come uh, to, uh, to Jerusalem. And clearly he feared for his life now that he, that he would be uh, killed for standing with Jeremiah. God says, no, no, you, do, you think that's the dangerous thing. Uh, the dangerous place is not to align with Jeremiah. I know how 
how this whole thing ends out. What's dangerous is to be aligned with the wickedness of this particular, uh, you know, cabinet and king and so forth when Nebuchadnezzar rolls into uh, Jerusalem. That's the dangerous place. There's so much that isn't clear to us. Uh, God's will, nothing less, uh, nothing, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Then we come into chapter 46 where he begins his prophecies against the nations. And uh, he begins, and there are all of these nations that he addresses are nations that are very close neighbors or immediately abut uh, the nation of Israel uh, or uh, Judah. You remember when Jeremiah began his ministry back in chapter 1, verse 5, that God spoke to Jeremiah that he would not only be a prophet uh, to Judah, but he would also be a prophet to the nations. And so we see him now uh, fulfilling that on behalf of uh, of the Lord. After all, the Lord is the, the Lord of, of all the earth. And he begins with his <clears throat> declaration of uh, judgment, the word of the Lord against uh, Egypt. The word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the nations. And he begins with Egypt, against Egypt. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Karshemesh, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, uh, king of Judah. And, uh, and so here you have a description of a great battle. It's uh, even those that are unfamiliar with the Bible altogether, but familiar somewhat with military history. The battle at Karkemesh was uh, one of the great battles in ancient uh, history. A little bit of background for you uh, history nuts, uh, all two of you. But anyway, you, uh, Pharaoh Necho, who was the pharaoh of Egypt at that particular point in time, uh, he had defeated uh, Judah and he had killed King Josiah. You remember King Josiah, great king of Judah. He went out as, as, uh, as Egypt was going uh, north in, with its military to fight against Babylon, and, uh, and uh, Josiah took the military of the Jews out against him. God didn't tell, told, didn't tell him to do that. He ends up, this great king, uh, losing his life, uh, kind of sticking his nose, uh, I don't know how to say it in a more eloquent way, but he stick, stuck his nose into something that was uh, none of his business, and it cost not him not only his own life, but it cost Judah a great, uh, a great and godly king. And uh, so uh, Pharaoh Necho was going north, and as he was uh, he heading north, then Nebuchadnezzar uh, defeated uh, Pharaoh Necho, uh, Necho at the Battle of Carchemish up in the area of the Euphrates. It was the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Seven years earlier than that battle and, and that defeat, uh, the Assyrian Empire had uh, fallen with the destruction of the, its capital, Nineveh. And what, that, what it did with the, the uh, destruction of the Assyrian Empire is it left these uh, powers of the east, uh, Babylon, and the great power of the west, Egypt, and now fight it o uh, over one another who would follow Assyria as the next world-ruling empire. Gives you the idea of, of the two great superpowers now, who is going to prevail and become the next world-ruling empire. And uh, 
on this route between Babylon and Egypt, uh, Carchemish uh, there, it makes, makes for, made for a very, very natural kind of geographically uh, confrontation point, and, and it was on his way there that, uh, that Necho <clears throat> took his military up in there. For the next uh, four years, as Egypt, uh, the Egyptian army goes up into Carchemish before the great battle, uh, Pharaoh dominated that part of the world. He dominated uh, Syria and, uh, and Israel, set up these puppet kings in all of the, uh, of the different uh, areas of, of that part of the Middle East because uh, Nebuchadnezzar was busy uh, conquering other parts of, of, of the world and consolidating his power there. And then at last, this great confrontation that was ultimately going to have to occur between Egypt and Babylon, uh, it occurred in uh, 605 B.C., and uh, the Babylonian army fell upon the Egyptians and utterly defeated them, sending them uh, home. And that defeat made uh, Egypt a second-rate power at that time. Babylon then became uh, the world-ruling power uh, of that age. As we uh, see here in verse 3, we have a, descri a description of how uh, Egypt viewed themselves going into the battle. Uh, they were the picture uh, of confidence as, as they prepared to meet with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in battle. Order the buckler and shield and draw near to battle. Harness the horses and mount up, you horsemen. Stand forth with your helmets. Polish the spears and uh, put on armor. You can almost feel, at least if you're a little boy and you played army or whatever, or you, those are men and women that have been in the military, have a far greater experience. But here's the excitement, uh, the pre-excitement of a great battle. And then uh, in verse 5, there's the description of the terrible defeat that follows all of that anticipation. Why have I seen them now dismayed and turned back? Their mighty ones are beaten down. They have fled, uh, speedily fled. They didn't uh, flee the battlefield uh, slowly. They ran for their lives, and they didn't look back. Now, that's running fast. For fear was all around, says uh, the Lord. There, the, the, the Egyptian army collapsed into a complete... Uh, a, a, a retreat. And uh, do not let the swift flee away, nor the mighty man escape, uh, as he speaks to the Babylonian army, to go ahead and uh, be a source of his judgment against Egypt. Uh, they will stumble and fall uh, up uh, toward, uh, toward the north by the river Euphrates. Who is this coming up as he begins to speak of Egypt once again? Like a flood whose waters move like the rivers. Egypt rises up like a flood, and its waters move uh, like the rivers. And so their army coming up into this battle, the Egyptian army, the poetic language, it was like a great flooding river, huge, massive, uncontrollable, uh, like the Nile at flood, uh, flood stage. I mean, it would be this, you would look at it and say, nobody can defeat the size of Egypt's, uh, Egypt's army. And he that is speaking of Pharaoh, declaring is, uh, prior to the battle, I will go up and I will cover the earth and I will destroy the city and its inhabitants. Uh, come up, O horses, and rage, O chariots, and let the mighty men come forth, the Ethiopians and the Libyans who handle the shield and the, uh, and the Lydians who handle and bend the bow. And so Egypt came up not only with her own great military, but also with these mercenary armies that she had hired from the surrounding 
surrounding nations, just to assure uh, success. For this is the day uh, of the Lord uh, of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour, it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood, for the Lord God of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river uh, Euphrates. And so God declares that uh, the, the end of uh, what they're heading into and all of their excitement, they would be ultimately and decisively defeated, uh, not because of the Babylonian army, but because it would be uh, God's judgment uh, against, uh, against them, and their defeat is uh, portrayed as a sacrifice. And so, uh, the Egyptian army kind of offered as a sacrifice uh, to the Lord and His wrath against the idolatry and the wickedness of Egypt. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin, the daughter of Egypt. In vain you will use many medicines. You shall not be cured. The nations shall hear, uh, have heard of your shame, and your cry has filled the land. Uh, you know, elsewhere in the Bible talks about the balm of Gilead, and they had the trading routes that would run north and south uh, in the same way that we have shipping lanes and all kinds of the ways that we move trade. And they would move through the land and these, these various highways, and well, some of those highways would make their way through the region of Israel that was known as Gilead, and they had these great plants and balms that would come out, of these aromatic balms that would come out of the plants that were grown there and so forth. And, and so, people would pick these up, and they would go all over the world, these balms, as a cure for everything. And, and so, here, again, the poetic language of, of trying to find some kind of a balm to cure uh, uh, this defeat, and God says, uh, there's no remedy for your defeat. There's no remedy for the shame that you're going to suffer uh, in the eyes of the rest of the world because of your pride. For the mighty man uh, has stumbled against the mighty, and both have fallen together. The word of the, that the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet, how Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, would come and strike the land of Egypt. And so, he's given a description of how Babylon would defeat uh, the uh, uh, Egyptians at Carchemish, and uh, all of that happened. And now, because Egypt's, Egypt's army had been so severely defeated in that battle, now Babylon decides, we're going to go into Egypt, and we're going to take that as, as well. And so, uh, here is uh, a description of of Babylon's invasion uh, of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal, a major city of Egypt. Uh, proclaim in Toph and in Taphanes, again, major cities within Egypt, and say, stand fast and prepare yourself, for the sword devours all around you. Why are your valiant men swept away? They did not stand because the Lord drove them away. And he made, uh, he made many fall. Yes, one fell upon another. And they said, arise, let us go back to our own uh, people. So, in the middle of the defeat that, that, uh, that they had, uh, the Egyptians had experienced at Carchemish, uh, then now as, as the battle comes into their own country against the Babylonians, the mercenaries that they had hired to fight with them, they said, let's get out of here and let's go uh, back to our own nations, the, 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 the causes lost, and, and uh, let us go back to our own people, to the land of our nativity, from the oppressing sword. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a noise, and he, his, 
uh, he has passed by the appointed time. And so as they're leaving and abandoning their posts as, as hired mission, uh, mercenary forces, they then take a, an opportunity to say that Pharaoh's a good for nothing. He's, we would say, he, he, they were saying, he's full of hot air. He's all talk and no, uh, no walk. He's all hat and no cattle. If you, little Oakdale thing for you here tonight. We've got a couple from from Oakdale here this evening, and just to honor them. Uh, but, you know, so he's able to talk, make these great speeches, but he can't, uh, you know, he can't uh, deliver. As I live, says the king, uh, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And so here is the Lord speaking, surely as Tabor is among the mountains and as Carmel, uh, Mount Carmel by the sea, so he shall come. Nebuchadnezzar, O oh, you, uh, you daughter dwelling in Egypt, prepare yourself to go into captivity, for Noph shall be waste and desolate without inhabitant. And so, again, poetic language, God is saying in the same way uh, that uh, Mount Tabor and Mount Carmel rise up uh, and are clearly seen from all over the land of, of Israel, uh, so too Nebuchadnezzar would invade uh, Egypt, and he would rise up and, uh, and, and, and rule uh, and tower over Egypt. Egypt is a very pretty uh, heifer. I don't know. It probably meant something wonderful uh, in the ancient world. Don't try it today, gentlemen. I, you, you're on your own. Uh, Egypt is a very pretty heifer, but destruction comes. It comes from the north, and uh, so more about her defeat here. Also, her mercenaries are in her midst like fat bulls, and for they have all, they also are turned back. They have fled away together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity had come upon them, the time of their punishment. Uh, her noise shall go like a serpent, uh, for they shall march with an army and come against her with axes like those who chop wood. And so the idea is that the Babylonian army will come in and destroy uh, uh, and lay waste to, uh, to Egypt in the, in the path of their invasion in the same way that uh, lumberjacks and lumber companies do uh, to a forest and with uh, just as much resistance and, uh, and with the same effectiveness. It talks about her noise shall go out like a serpent. This is the, the Lord uh, speaking with some sanctified scorn concerning the gods of Egypt and the ineffectiveness of their uh, idols to protect them uh, from Babylon. Uh, they, uh, they worshiped uh, gods that were associated with snakes and, and their insignias. They would take it into battle concerning their military, had a snake associated with it and so forth. And, and so God uh, makes note of the fact that it won't, it won't do them any good. They shall cut down her forests, says the Lord, and though it cannot be searched, because they are innumerable and more numerous than grasshoppers. The daughter of Egypt shall be ashamed. She shall be delivered uh, into the hand of the people of the north. And so, long before any of this happened, God 
uh, prophesied the fact that, no, Egypt, uh, these things are being written at a time where nobody knew. It'd be kind of like uh, today if we were looking and saying, well, you know, in terms of superpowers, the United States versus Russia or the United States versus China, who's going to become the dominant uh, or remain the do- Will we remain or will we be replaced by China or these kind of things? None of us know what history is going to bring. And it was that same kind of thing. People had the same kind of uncertainty that we had today. They didn't know. One of these two will. We don't know who it will be. And Jeremiah told them plainly who would ultimately uh, win a decisive battle and ultimately take that place. And all of it uh, came to pass exactly as God said it would and, and as all of his prophecies will. And the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon uh, of, of No and, uh, and Pharaoh and Egypt with their uh, gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust uh, in him. And so there, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the judgment, and, and then he goes on in verse 26 and says, and I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. And so, here is uh, the, uh, uh, all of Egypt's gods are exposed now in this defeat, and the defeat is coming. And then the latter part of verse 26, afterwards it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. So here's God's grace related to Egypt. He, he speaks of the fact that they're going to have this, uh, this defeat and this uh, shameful defeat, uh, but that they will not cease to be a nation. Uh, they will not be uh, displaced in, indefinitely, and, and they uh, a, a, a Egypt will be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. And, and, so, and so they did. They were, uh, though they were defeated by Babylon, uh, they were, they, uh, Babylon did not do to Egypt what it did to other countries, and that is displace uh, its population and take them to other parts of the Babylonian Empire or to Babylon itself. And so Egypt continued, unlike some of the other nations that uh, are going to be mentioned in the, in the course of these prophecies. And then uh, in the midst of all of this, uh, I, I think the Lord, it, it, when you read through the Bible and, and all of these prophecies that are sometimes so strong and so uh, overwhelming, hard to read one after the other. I think, uh, I think the Lord can only take so much bad news at a time himself. And uh, he likes to talk about something. He likes, the, he likes happy endings if he's given any kind of an opportunity to bring one about in uh, the nations of the world or in, in our own individual lives. And so he uh, returns to speak uh, about uh, Judah, talk about Israel and uh, the, the great future that lies ahead of them, uh, you know, following their judgment at the hands of the Babylonians as well. But do not fear, O my servant Jacob, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Uh, Jacob shall return and have rest and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, speaking again of the nation of Israel. My servant, says the Lord, for I am with you, for I make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, but for I will not leave you wholly 
unpunished. And so God repeats His promise to them that following His uh, discipline of them in their Babylonian captivity, that ultimately uh, they will return to the land. And God always wants grace to be the final, uh, final chapter in any situation with, uh, within our lives. And so, uh, this great promise that's given to them. Chapter 47, and the prophecy now moves to uh, prophecies against the Philistines and also uh, Phoenicia. And uh, when you think about the Philistines, they, of course, they, uh, they occupied what we know as the uh, Gaza Strip today, a uh, 50-mile uh, strip of land that's along the Mediterranean Sea from, uh, that stretches from Gaza to, to Joppa. And the Philistines were a constant uh, thorn in the flesh of the nation of, of Israel. And they were either always fighting against the people of Israel, uh, the children of Israel, and never for righteous reasons. They were always just wanting to conquer them. And the only time they were ever at peace with the Jews was when the Jews had the upper hand militarily and so forth, and they knew to attack them now would be, mean they would just crush us. So, uh, they, you know, you, they were always just bad characters in the neighborhood. <clears throat> And you knew that the first chance they get to, uh, to jump up and destroy us, the Jews knew that about the Philistines, they'll take that opportunity. And, and, it, and, and God lets uh, the Philistines know that I've watched all of this. I mean, you've done this, you've done this to my people, you've done this against me. Uh, and I've said that I will bless those that uh, bless these people, I will curse those who curse these people. And, and now the judgment comes to you uh, as a result of it. And so, he said, the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Philistines uh, before Pharaoh's attack uh, against uh, Gaza. So, this gives us some context for all of this. You've got all kinds of, at this time in their history, all kinds of political uh, intrigue going on and, and power struggles going on in the Middle East, again, between, uh, principally between Egypt and, and Babylon at the time for the control of the Middle East. Egypt had earlier uh, invaded Gaza, had defeated the Philistines, and, and made a vassal state of them. But later, when Egypt was defeated by the Babylonians, the Babylonians on their march to uh, the borders of Egypt uh, proceeded to uh, conquer all of the vassal states that belonged to Egypt, including uh, the Philistines. And God describes this attack that will occur by Babylon, thus says the Lord, behold, waters rise out of the north, speaking about the size of Babylon's army, like a great flood. And it shall be an overflowing flood, and they shall overflow the land and all that is in it, uh, the city and those who dwell within it. Uh, then the men shall cry, and all the inhabitants of the land uh, shall wail and in, 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 at the sight of this great army coming in, at the noise of the stamping uh, hooves of his strong horses, at the rushing of uh, Babylon's chariots, at the rumbling of his wheels, and the fathers shall not look back for their children, uh, lacking courage. And so, when this army comes in, the the uh, Philistine men who are involved in the battle, they will run for their lives, and they will leave their children 
uh, to their own fate at the hands of the Babylonians. In other words, here is a fear that is about to grip them, a judgment that is to be so great that all natural instinct to protect your children is, is lost here. I, uh, it, it, I, I don't say that I've ever felt that kind of fear in my life. Maybe you have, but we can kind of put ourselves in their shoes. It's a, a, a fearsome place, what they, what, what they were facing. All of it absolutely righteous, all of it just. But again, the, the, you know, the way that the world just plays fast and loose with God as if this whole thing of life is, is a big game and uh, that we can do whatever we want, we can disregard or regard God as we like, and to think that there aren't consequences for these things, and consequences that will ultimately uh, reach in and affect those that are the dearest to us in life, and that is uh, our, our spouses and, and our children, and, and uh, so it happened. And uh, so, lacking courage, they flee, and, and they don't even look back to see what happens to their children because of the, because of the day that comes to plunder all the Philistines, to cut, off, uh, cut them off from Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are part of what we know today as, as Lebanon, and, and they were allies of the Philistines in those days. Every helper who remains, or everybody that could help the Philistines, natural allies would be unable to help them at all in this judgment. For the Lord shall plunder the Philistines, uh, the remnant of the country of Kaftor. And Kaftor is an ancient name for the country that we know or the island that we know of is Crete. And Crete was uh, the uh, uh, originating place of the Philistine uh, people, even though they ended up settling uh, most significantly in uh, the area of Gaza. Baldness has come upon Gaza, and uh, so whether it's speaking about the baldness of the land, it's completely wiped out, or whether they've shaved their heads because of their mourning. Ashkelon, another, uh, Gaza was a, a large city within their, that, uh, the Philistine country. Ashkelon is another great city. It is cut off with the remnant of their valley. How long will you cut uh, yourself? And and, uh, and, and then in verse 6, O oh, oh, you sword of the Lord, how long until you are quiet? Uh, put yourself up into your scabbard and rest and be still. And so the question is asked in the middle of all of this judgment, God, how long are you going to carry this judgment on until you uh, bring it to an end? And the Lord responds in verse 7, how can this judgment be quiet seeing the Lord has given it a charge against Ashkelon and against the seashore where he has appointed it. And so the answer was that as long as uh, man continues his willful wickedness and disobedience and rebellion against God and idolatry, though pagans, though pagans, not believing in the God of the Bible, but, it, but you're still answer to him, answerable to him anyway. Whether I'm a Hindu or I'm a Muslim or whether I'm a Buddhist or whatever, it doesn't matter. Say, well, I, I'm involved in, in this. I disregard the God of the Bible. But he is still the creator of every one of those people. And, and he is, is still deserving of, of the worship. 
and, and he still demands that of his creation because he is due that. And so God says, as long as all of this stuff is going on, all of this wickedness, yes, it's being done in the name of false gods, uh, but God looks at it and says, that doesn't impress me or sanctify it at all. It is still rebellion against the revelation of my word and of my nature and I will judge it until uh, it is uh, properly judged to the point of repentance. We will stop there tonight because chapter 48, if you just turn, you see how long it is. And it uh, deals with uh, the a prophecy against Moab. Some very, very fascinating sections to that particular prophecy. And, um, but we won't want to tear into it and get, you know, a third of the way or half of the way and then stop and pick it up next week. We'll, we'll tackle it all at the same time. And this gives us a wonderful opportunity to invite the worship team uh, to come up and uh, perk us up in some way uh, in leading us to in, in worship. I say that, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek. A lot of good things in what we've looked at tonight, important things to give consideration uh, related to our own lives, our own moment in human history, and uh, the importance of, of being very much in the will of God, whatever that is uh, for our lives, and, and certainly not to be found in, in wandering about on our own in a world that is uh, set for judgment and that we don't know where that judgment will begin or, or where, you know, where it will end before the rapture uh, of the church. And so good things and and let's spend some time just worshiping him. He is due that. He was due that among all these nations. He didn't receive it. It is our pleasure to do that uh, this evening as we close the service.